0: Hello and welcome to the Surviving Divorce and Separation podcast. My name's Sam Eddy. Today we're going to be talking about all things to do when relationships break down, specifically focusing on parenting, property, well-being and, of course, children. We know that divorce and separation costs the Australian economy $14 billion a year, but the personal cost to parents and children is immeasurable. Many people who go through separation suffer from high stress and bewilderment and having to deal with the breakup of of a relationship, the impact on their children, while having to deal with the practical problems of shared parenting and property settlements, often all while having to navigate the costly legal system for the first time and trying to, make, uh, trying to manage busy careers. So there's a lot going on. We know that divorce rates, depending on which report or which statistic you look at, can be between 30 to 50% of the population in any one year. So it's something that affects us all from time to time, and it's often not talked about. So it's great to be having this episode and another two to follow, and perhaps maybe more, we'll see how it goes, to really unpack a lot of this stuff, because often we only hear about it or talk about it in the heat of the moment when there's a crisis. And that can be useful, but it doesn't always help us necessarily make the choices or be prepared to take the course of action that's ultimately going to benefit ourselves um, and our family as well. My name's Sam Eddy. As I said, I'm a workplace wellbeing educator. I do a lot of work with organisations, helping them reduce stress, prevent burnout, just all so that we can embed wellbeing in our lives to really thrive in all areas of life, including with our careers. And of course, in the coaching and training work I do for a range of organisations, relationship breakdown is something that always comes up whether it be in professional services, banking, nursing, doctors, small business. It's something that in my work with clients, I come across all the time. And today, and for the whole series, I'm fortunate to be joined by Vincent Eddy, who is a family lawyer. And if you've clocked that we have the same surname, he's also my dad. So Vin, welcome. It's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm
1: doing well. and It's great to be here and talk about some of the things that we've had many
0: discussions about indeed and look it is great to be able to do this isn't it to bring together some of the discussions that we have that we think at least are valuable to people and some information that might be of use to people and actually bring it into the podcast forum Um, and so we're going to talk about a whole range of things we're going to talk about dealing with the emotions and the suppressed feelings that come up from relationships so how do you actually get back on your feet no matter at which stage of the process you're in we're going to talk a lot about the importance of self-care um, which is something that I do a lot of in my work. But we're going to also talk about some of the legal aspects and how do you build a foundation of confidence to make the right decisions to know what to expect from um, a legal professional, Um, we're going to discuss what that means or what your expectations can be from courts as well, just to demystify some of these. But today is very much around helping you build a foundation of confidence to move forward. Vin, I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of these issues shortly, but it'd be great if you don't mind giving a background on your experience.
1: Sure, Sam. I have two arms to my practice. One is family law and the other is building and construction law, just mainly in the domestic market. I first became interested in family law through my connection with a community legal centre and, in particular, dealing with parenting matters, which uh, is the label we use in Legal Circus for dealing with children's issues. And my background in building and construction law um, comes from well, my work is a builder in a previous life, so I have two arms to my practice, and I find it's a, a nice balance. So here I am.
0: So thanks for that, Vin. And I guess there is, um, you know, a lot of experiences that we bring into all our work, and I, I and I presume the building side of your work, you know, given that property is such an issue for people, um, it just adds to the work you do from a family law perspective as well. So certainly, lots to explore. All right. So if we're thinking about um, the first things that people do, you know, when they realise they're in a relationship breakdown, they're going through separation or perhaps even experiencing divorce. I know from a wellbeing perspective, I often talk about, Know, creating a foundation of well-being so that you can have clarity over decisions that you've got to make no matter what challenge you might be facing. But I mean, what comes to mind for you, Vin, in terms of some of the first things that you recommend people do, given that the backdrop to many of the issues that people face in relationship breakdown, particularly dealing with kids, property, money issues, is they're always, they've got, I guess, one eye on the law and the court system as well, even if they don't engage engage with it at some point.
1: I think, Sam, most people would be better off getting some legal advice very early on in the process. There are so many myths out there about what the law can and can't do for you that I find if clients at least have some idea of the legal landscape ahead of them, they're more likely to go away and be able to negotiate a successful outcome amongst themselves or the clients amongst themselves. So... I would suggest go and see a lawyer. There are plenty of firms that offer a no-fee free consultation. Get an idea of what that landscape is so at least you're aware of the background that might lie ahead if you can't
0: successfully
1: negotiate something with your ex-partner.
0: So on a practical level... Do people often come to you more in the heat of the moment so they haven't actually done what you've recommended? Because that, that is actually sound advice to me, although I, I often—I wouldn't have thought about that necessarily. But do often people come to you perhaps at the opposite time when you know they're in the heat of the moment and then they're, they're already kind of at dispute phase and then that can be then harder, presumably?
1: Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, and that's probably the second reason why I would say go and see a lawyer early on because if they do come, uh, after they're tried to negotiate, you know, negotiations break down, <sighs> invariably that's why they come and see a lawyer, and at that stage they're often frustrated, angry, um, et etc. et cetera. and they've charted a course for themselves that may not necessarily be legally viable and assuming, and they've charted that course assuming that the law would be able to help them. So to answer your question, yes, people come to me during the negotiating process with their ex-partner, they're often angry, frustrated, and they would be better off if they had at least some you know, knowledge of what that legal landscape was right at uh, the very beginning of the separation process. And this is not a plug to um, go and see a lawyer and so that I can up my fees, but it's it's a plug, I think, for well-being of clients. Go and see an a lawyer first to dispel some of those myths out there, and then you're probably less likely to come back and see that lawyer. So I'm doing myself out of a job in one sense.
0: Well, presumably it's about understanding, isn't it? So it's about understand. I know the work I do. If people are suffering from stress, even a mental health issue, a lot of the recommendations I talk about is understanding how it is you got to this point. Understanding what your options are, the help, the types of help available for you, so that you can then really make confident choices. And it sounds to me you're exactly, you know, saying the same thing, which perhaps people wouldn't think of because I guess we've all got assumptions about what the law is supposed to be, how the courts work. And I know through our discussions, um, the law is not necessarily black and white. Um, There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of, I guess, potentially leeway for you know magistrates or judges to make decisions. Um, that might may or may not align with what you think is fair when you're maybe going through a dispute with a partner around parenting issues?
1: Oh, absolutely. You could go before, you know, five judges and you you are likely to get, a you know, a significant variation in decisions. So you might get three different types of decisions. It's very difficult to predict, uh, to leave the matter in the hands of the, the courts and judges at a final hearing... Um, it's a bit of a raffle, and if you can avoid that, and it doesn't mean that the law is not working properly, it's just an indication of the inadequacies of the law, if you can avoid that and take ownership of the process in the meantime, you're more likely to come to a you know, resolution that you can live with.
0: So um, I'm just thinking then in terms of self-care, I mean, what are some of the challenges you have in terms of the things that make it harder for you to get the outcomes or get, get outcomes that people can maybe find peace with, for want of a better word? Well, on a practical level, it can be, and I
1: mentioned this first, it can be the other party and their legal team. You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of firms that are out, out there that are litigious, uh, and it might be client-driven or it might be driven by the firm or it might be a combination of both. So one of the challenges is dealing with the other party and their legal team and trying to accept the reality of where they're at. Now, I'll put that to a side. Uh, the bigger challenge for me is to um, journey with my clients. I'm, I don't feel that I'm not a guru about the law. You've already mentioned about the law being well-couched in a lot of grey areas, and I think that's true. What I seek to do with my clients is to try and journey with them in a cooperative way, and their well-being At any stage in the legal process, is uh, is important for me because uh, if they're angry or frustrated or even depressed, I don't know whether they're hearing what I'm saying. I don't know whether they've got the capacity to accept the advice. Sometimes, even the other extreme, um, I say something to them and they're all happy, uh, accepting, and I'm thinking, well, I actually said the opposite of what you think I'm saying. So it really depends on the state of mind that. A client is in at any one stage and that determines their ability to take in the advice or accept the advice or um, comment on the advice and I don't expect clients to accept the advice that I give. And in fact, I welcome an inquiry into it because that means that they're engaging in the process. So the real challenge for me is journeying with the, with the client and getting the client on board and their state of wellbeing is terribly important in, in that you know, a client that's comfortable, happy, can accept the reality of the situation, is a client that's going to own the outcome more than, if any judge, you know, hands down a final order. mm yeah,
0: I love it. I think that's that's great advice. If So, for those listening, this is, I guess, a great time. This is sort of 30 minutes that you've got out of your busy day and maybe to try and disconnect a little bit from the emotions around some of the issues that you might be feeling. Or even if you're listening and you're, you've got friends, family, loved ones in mind who might be going through this, um, often what I recommend to do is just to take a bit of time to write down what your reality is. So, You talked about that, Vin, in terms of establishing what your reality, what are some of the challenges that you've got at the moment that maybe have been running around in your head or rolling around in your mind for a while, maybe gathering a bit of stress as we continue to think about them? You know, writing some of them down can create a bit of distance or a bit of space between you and these events. And then also writing down what the challenge is, but what an ideal outcome might be for you or what a res- what a good resolution might look like or what some a number of good resolutions might look like, knowing that if we're dealing with other parties, you know, it's, it is going to be a bit of a negotiation. Also noting down what you'd be happy with if you couldn't get everything you wanted. So trying to... Have a focus on what your reality is, what your hopes and goals are, but also what you'd be happy with. That can just be a good leveller in terms of getting some reality on the situation, but also getting perspective. The other thing I would say that comes up in my discussions with clients is that, and I think you've mentioned this before, Vin, dealing with the emotions and the suppressed feelings of the relationship, they can come up particularly as you're trying to get back on your feet. So all these underlying tensions that perhaps were never expressed in a relationship often there's freedom when the relationship breaks down to talk about them but they can then be unhelpful when you're trying to make practical decisions so just really writing down what some of these emotions are or these feelings that are coming up can be a, a, a way to sort of a, a pressure release valve to release some of the tension so it's not so overwhelming and driving your decision making so really writing this stuff down reaching out to you know a trusted friend someone wants some support if that's um, necessary, someone who's not going to fuel the fire that you might be feeling can be a really great way to deal with the emotional side of things so you can then start to real, take real ownership of the process as we've been talking about. Does that make sense, Vin?
1: Uh, absolutely, Sam. I think what you're saying there about writing down, say, expectations, resolution, what you hope to you know, get out of the legal process or when you go and see a lawyer Uh, That's terribly important because it's going to raise your antennae so you're more likely to ask a question of the lawyer rather than just accept the lawyer's advice if you go unprepared. So you're more likely to ask the question because you thought about it beforehand in that way. And um, that I see as enabling a client to really journey and take part in the process in a cooperative way. Uh, That's terribly important. And the other point you mentioned about their emotions, yes, at any stage, I don't mind if clients come to see me and they're really angry, but a client that can identify that anger and express that and let me know about it is a client that I can work with because I can work with them where they're at. So identifying their emotions, um, if they let me know how they're going, that's something that I can work with. So those two areas that you're talking about, um, their emotional well-being and the strategies in terms of writing things down and exploring what they want out of the legal process are two important preparatory tools i would say
0: mm, great and i like what you're saying around it's you know it's okay if people do engage in the process you know if they're emotional and we're not saying i guess we're not trying to suggest that those emotions won't come up and they're not normal they are absolutely normal but I like what you said around it, as long as you're having awareness around it. So if you were aware you're in a state of frustration or anger and you can express that, that's already reducing the tension just a little bit so you at least have awareness of what might be overlaying some of your decision-making. And then if you're speaking to a lawyer or someone else, that might just give you the awareness you need to make a decision that's going to hopefully, uh, you know, uh, lead you towards a better outcome for you, but also improve your well-being at the same time. Some of the tips I recommend to deal with high stress situations or just to reduce the amount of overwhelm you might be feeling are really basic things around um, looking after physical health. So, you know exercise, you know, thinking about are you sleeping well, Um, using the exercise that you do hopefully daily or every few times a week to burn off some of the excess tension in the system to get a bit of downtime mentally, Um, things about, you know, looking after your mind or mental health, meditation, mindfulness, um, might just be reading a book, you know, catching up with a friend might be something that you need to do for your downtime. Anything that you can, that, that, that provides balance and, and more stability for you to ensure that you're feeling good physically, but also mentally um, as a foundation will help you. So if you've slept well the night before, you're not you know, having too much coffee, you're not going too crazy on the booze at night that will all help if you then engage with a lawyer or even engage you with your partner who you're trying to come to a resolution. So, this kind of stuff works together, doesn't it, Vin?
1: Oh, one dovetails into the other, you know, absolutely. Um, I mean, I find as a a lawyer and as a legal practitioner, I'm limited in, I mean, I'd love to be able to give that advice and I I couldn't put it so concisely, but um, not my position to give that advice because I'm not qualified to give that, that advice. So I'm limited to inquiring about their welfare, trying to identify where they are at any particular time. But where clients are, say for example, in counseling or talking to, you know, someone trusted or someone that can give some health advice, I find that they can they're more prepared and more willing to journey in the process and make Pragmatic and sensible decisions.
0: Yeah, look, absolutely. And I guess so. We're if we're if we're kind of trying to take people on a bit of a journey with us. So what we've covered so far, we've talked about what the reality might be for people dealing with the suppressed emotions. You've got given some great advice around perhaps ga- engaging a lawyer earlier on in the process, even if you never engage with the court system, just to really get to to know the lie of the land, to anticipate things that might come up, to get a bit of an understanding of maybe how the courts work and what they decide on. But what are some of those things? I mean, what is the court's role? Just to give people a bit of background in this, because often the, the idea or the concept of fairness comes up in terms of that, you know, this is not fair and so I'll take you to court. You can't treat me like this or you know the property's mine and we often hear these thoughts and these um pleas come up in conversations with people but what's what is the court's role in help in trying to resolve disputes for people who can't come to an agreement themselves
1: so two people come to the court because they've been unable unable to negotiate a mutually acceptable outcome i mean i prefer that they would i'd prefer that, prefer that they would Um, you know, ignore the courts if they'll not ignore the courts but not go to court if they could. Unfortunately, I think, you know, the court's role on a practical level is fairly drawn out because it's got to sift through the evidence carefully. It mandates, you know, mediations to try and resolve things at an early stage, processes as well. So the court's role is trying to resolve a dispute the company be resolved by the parties themselves, but it has fairly strict guidelines as to how that can be done. And I think parties are mystified by that. They don't understand why they have to do this or they have to do that. And the challenge for me is to explain to clients that this is a court way a court way of doing things. When you can't resolve a problem yourself, you can't really expect to go to someone else and expect them to resolve the way that you think it ought to be resolved. So there is fairness and justice, I think, in the way the courts go about doing it. But fairness and justice seen by an independent third party is not necessarily same fairness and justice that parties have when they enter into the court process. So So
0: do you think it's fair to say then in terms of, you know, one one piece of advice could be to lower expectations around what the court can do in terms of meeting your personal standards around maybe parenting or what's fair from a money allocation or property allocation split?
1: Yes, I, I think so. You know, not to expect that it's going to necessarily work out the way that you think it is going to work out.
0: And what are some of the typical examples? So uh, f- from the the conversations I have with clients, it can often come down to with access to children or parenting. And we're going to talk about in more detail in, in subsequent episodes around the ins and outs of this stuff. But as one example, you know, parenting or um, access to kids, um, if there's a difference of opinion around parenting, someone might say, you know, a mum or a dad might think that the other person is not, you know, caring for their kids in a way that they think is appropriate or up to their standard they might then have an expectation the court might then allocate custody to reflect that which of course may not be the case would yes. That be fair to say? yes exactly and, and
1: what the court would want is <clears throat> the court would want an independent view of the situation you're describing so if one partner doesn't think that they're treating the children appropriately you go to court the court's not going to simply take your word for it and if you've got as I was saying before, you've got your relatives that say, "Oh yes, they've done this, they've done that, and they've done the other thing to you know the children involved." The court might necessarily accept that if it doesn't regard that as independent advice. And you can, and as I again I said before, it's a question of one party having their team and the other party having their team as well. What the court wants is independent advice, and one of the things that the- so
0: you're talking about evidence in terms of. You know, if, um, you know, um, the grandparents of your, you know, your parents, um, if you're the mum or dad, saying, giving evidence of of to maybe how your ex-partner is parenting your kids, they won't accept that as evidence because it's not independent.
1: Oh, they, they will. They will give appropriate weight to it, but that alone won't be sufficient. So one of the things the court will do, for example, is order what is called a family report. Now, a family report is written by a person called a family consultant who would be a trained psychologist or social worker who would interview both parties, interview the children and any other, you know, relevant person they thought would be appropriate in the circumstance and write a report to the court. Now, the purpose of that report is to provide independent evidence of you know, how the child is being treated, the parenting habits of the parties involved, and it may or may not give, you know, some credence to the evidence that's provided by family and friends. So what I'm saying is that the court's role there is is to arrive at an independent decision. So it won't necessarily accept the evidence produced by the parties themselves or, or want some independent evidence. And in children's matters, invariably, a family report is ordered. Now, as far as the process is concerned, if the parties are relying on the public purse, the courts are overrun at the moment and it might be six months into the process by the time it starts before you get a family report that's finalised and presented to the court. It might even take 12 months. So the courts, in terms of what you're talking about before the role of the courts, uh, aside from any interest, any Question of fairness and justice, it's very, very slow and that can be extremely frustrating for clients.
0: Yes, well, I think that's really important to acknowledge upfront the the time delay and of course how that adds to the stress, as you say, and to the well-being of people. And I guess that's another reminder and another reason to really, um, for those listening, to embed well-being into your life, to really look at how you're, you've structured your life. What are the stressors and the challenges that you're facing? What are you doing for your physical health? What are you doing for your mental downtime? How's work going? I know that professions, certain professions are more prone to relationship breakups, such as from a healthcare perspective, nurses who tend to give a lot in their role for example i think their divorce rates are highest of all the healthcare professions so if we're in you mm. know, every aspect of our life impacts what's happening in our relationship but also for our own well-being so we have to slow down as best we can and it's not easy to do of course but and then have a look at all aspects of our life and go okay what's what's the connection here if i'm flogging myself and working really hard and then not having um, not having any downtime not Doing my well-being stuff, not looking after myself physically, not eating properly, um, not disconnecting from all the news um, regularly to give myself a bit of a mental break, then that's going to impact everything. But in terms of what we're willing to accept, how we negotiate, and a whole range of other factors. So, um, and then if of course if we're then we're trying to deal with the court system if it gets to that and there's long delays, the uncertainty level of uncertainty can build up. And of course we're recording this in the midst of coronavirus and COVID-19. So that's, you know, I guess that uncertainty is overlaying everything else and there's a whole range of other issues that are coming in, which we haven't really talked about yet today. Well,
1: then. well I think the, the COVID-19 is a good example of the, I guess, the inadequacy of the court to be able to deal with issues, apart from what you mentioned, that the length of the process can exacerbate the already stress feelings that people have. Um, a classic case might be in property, where the main asset is the family home, let's say just prior to COVID-19, you know, hitting Australia, there was a court settlement, and the, the court settlement has been around one partner buying out the other partner from the family home and giving that partner, say, a set amount. Now, it might be a modest house worth say five hundred thousand dollars. The equity in the house might be limited, but because one partner you know, has the benefit of the family home being signed over to it. The other partner gets, say, you know, $50,000. COVID-19 hits. So the partner that's going to take over the former family home finds maybe, God they can't get a loan anymore or their work rates drop so that they can't afford a loan. So the only thing that they can do is probably, you know, sell the house to pay out the settlement amount that they have to pay to the other other party. Now, that settlement settlement amount is fixed. The equity in the home has dropped 10%. So maybe any equity that that partner that was going to take over the formerly, former family home, maybe that's going to be wiped out. Now, they can go back to court, spend another 12 months in court, uh, which from a practical and sensible point of view is hardly... Hardly a great outcome. So, what are the courts going to do in that circumstance? I would think a practical and sensible resolution would be that you know the parties come together and try and agree to ride this out and see if you know house prices increase. But that's going to take an awful amount of cooperation between the parties. And if they're in a antagonistic relationship, that's going to be that's you know, going to be very difficult. But I would have thought it would be in both their interest to. Right at, if they could financially, the COVID-19 crisis, watch till the property market bounces back and they would all be in um, probably a better place. So how do the courts deal with COVID-19 in that practical situation? Probably not as well as the parties could deal with it themselves, I would think.
0: Yeah, interesting times indeed. And I guess um, maybe in the next episode, we'll start to, what we're going to do in the next episode, we're going to talk more about how you build confidence around knowing your rights and responsibilities in regard to some of these examples. So that specific example you've talked through, but we'll talk about other practical things around child support, which comes up for many people. Um, What does it mean? You know, what, what are the rights or responsibilities of someone residing in a former family home, paying rent, mortgage, home ownership, access to motor vehicles, bank accounts, credit cards, superannuation, insurance, use of intervention orders, etc. Because often, you know, once you've established your foundation, or you've started to take more ownership of the process, perhaps you've gotten to grips with some of the emotional or suppressed emotions that are coming up. And hopefully you're able to then start to make uh, have clarity of thinking. We've already started to talk a little bit around what the court's role is just to help with confidence around decision making and knowing you know things uh, uh, knowing things to maybe expect um and i guess next time we can also vin and you again started to talk about it talk about what this means in terms of covid19 so you've talked about the property perhaps valuations changing and of course physical distancing will impact you know how people um have access to kids when they're shared parent when there's shared parenting going on or code parenting going on and seeing loved ones etc so we might cover that a bit more next time but what should people do I mean obviously I'm not a lawyer I can't give legal advice and you've talked about there's um, options for people just to get a free consultation are you happy for people to contact you Um, should they have any queries about anything that we've discussed today sure
1: they'd be most welcome to Sam
0: and what's the best contact? Is it via email? Email
1: is probably the best if they send me an inquiry give me a a brief idea about um, what they would like to discuss and then I could reply by email with a short response and then follow up with a telephone conversation
0: What's your email Vin?
1: Uh, Vin it's all lowercase V-I-N at Law. E-D-D-Y-L-A-W Dot com.au.
0: Great. And I'll put that information um, on the overview of the podcast as well. So hopefully for anyone listening, if you've got any queries, sure. um, you'll have that information. Um, and if you've got any uh if you want any further well-being tips, we've sort of covered some things today. We're going to talk about self-care and well-being throughout the series, but um there's a lot of information on my website, Samuel Eddie, .com.au. Um, so feel free to go there. And I regularly post things on LinkedIn. So reminders around well-being, sitting up well-being anchors in your life on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there also. Um, any final words before we finish up today?
1: No, Sam. I look forward to getting into the nitty-gritty of the law next time we speak.
0: Beautiful. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you online with us next time. Thank <laughs> you.